It's another Problematic Women Day on the podcast, and Kelsey Harkness, a senior news producer at The Daily Signal, and Lauren Evans, a producer at the Heritage Foundation and The Daily Signal, are joining us. Thanks for being on, guys. Thanks so much for having us. So first off, we're going to discuss the story you probably haven't heard that much about on the media. All the women on the right who triumphed in elections Tuesday night, Marsha Blackburn will be Tennessee's first woman senator. Kay Ivey in Alabama, Christy Nome in South Dakota, and Kim Reynolds of Iowa will all be the first female governors in their states. And young Kim became the first Korean-American woman elected to Congress. Of course, there are plenty of firsts among women on the left, too, including the first Muslim women in the United States House of Representatives and the youngest woman in Congress ever, our favorite, or maybe not, (laughs) Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But you've probably heard a lot more about them. So besides the victories, another liberal narrative came up, and this is how horrible white women are. This came up in several races. Um, CNN polling showed that over 50 percent of white women voted for Ted Cruz, other Republicans, and the Women's March helpfully tweeted, quote, there needs to be accountability and honest reckoning. There's a lot of work to do, white women, a lot of learning, a lot of growing. We want to do it with you. Stay tuned. So, Kelsey and Lauren, are you ready to grow? (laughs) I mean, full disclaimer, Kelsey and I are both white women. So... I believe Kate is. Yeah, I as well. Yes, I I do identify as a white woman, which is what I am. But yeah, it's just ridiculous. I mean, how many graphics have you seen about congratulations to all the women uh, who made first? And I haven't seen one with a conservative woman on it, so... I've heard almost nothing about Marsha Blackburn. Yeah. I think the RNC was the only one really putting information out there that was saying, hey, guys, uh, conservative women, Republican women fared pretty well, too. I mean, three governorships to take over female Republican governors. I think that's very threatening to the left because look at no look no further than Nikki Haley to see uh, how a female governor on the Republican side can fare. Uh, she obviously has been doing a formidable job at the United Nations. And, um, you know, I think it's quite possible that she one day makes a run for the presidency. Um, so I, I get really torn on how to comment on these types of stories, because even just, you know, creating two buckets of men or women, um, it feels like identity politics to me. Um, that said, you know, as a women's podcast, as, you know, writers and producers that do acknowledge that there's differences between men and women, I think it is okay to talk about. But then when we start breaking it down into um, identities further than that, it just gets into this whole idea of intersectional politics, which I I fear only divides the country and when we really need to be uniting. Yeah. And I think, too, I think part of what's frustrating, and this is a topic that you guys have addressed so often on Problematic Women, is this assumption that all women who care about women's rights think the same way. And there was an article in Vogue that was published that um, really sort of struck this note Um The author, Michelle Ruse, writes, quote, in the Georgia governor's race, an estimated 75 percent of white women, more even than white men, voted for Republican Brian Kemp, who is passionately pro-life over Stacey Abrams, a staunch protector of women's reproductive rights, while 97 percent of black women supported her. 
In Texas, 60% of white women cast their ballots for Republican Senator Ted Cruz, a supporter of alleged assaulters President Trump and Brett Kavanaugh over Democrat Beto O'Rourke, who is dedicated to improving women's health care. And I think what she's missing here is there are plenty of women who didn't think Kavanaugh was guilty. There are plenty of women who are pro-life. Like these, ah, it's just so frustrating that like women are not allowed to have their own views in the minds of these so-called feminists. And how many women... Healthcare, reproductive health isn't their number one issue. They care about the economy. They care about border security. They care about what's going on overseas. It's just insane to me that these people literally think that life starts and ends at people's. Well, I guess it does start and end at the uterus, but their world starts and ends with a woman's uterus. Yeah, I was looking at some exit polling and it looked like among women, healthcare was a top concern, which I think is really interesting because for so long, I think, um, you know, I think groups on the right, politicians on the, on the right weren't sure how to message on this front. And they actually started to do a lot better in this past election cycle and I think are continuing to improve. I think we're in the situation where Obamacare wasn't working for so many families. And, you know, women are often the ones taking their kids to the doctor's appointments, believe it or not. I know some people would probably say that's, that's sexist to assume, but it's just the reality. There are more women who stay home and probably are the ones dealing with doctors and medical bills. And so it makes sense to me that health care would be a top concern for them. And um, because Obamacare isn't working, the prices continue to rise, I, although they, they dropped 1.5% when they've been rising by hundreds of dollars uh, year after year. So I think we're at the point where, um, you know, families want different ideas. And I have to say that's what conservatives are trying to do. They're trying to empower states to um to enable them to design health care plans that are going to work for their families. So I think this is actually not a challenge for Republicans to message on, but an opportunity to connect with voters on an issue that is a top concern for them that I think um, in a lot of ways they've been scared of talking about for a long time. Well, for our second topic, in an essay in Marie Claire, a mom frets that she shouldn't have adopted her daughters from China, essentially arguing they might have been better off staying there. She writes, Now I worry that we made a tragic mistake. I pulled those two beautiful babies away from a rising power and into a damaged democracy. I brought two girls of color into a society where it's clear that their word and their bodies are worth less than a man's. And where open, overt racism has become even more likely now than it was a decade ago. And unfortunately, my worries aren't exactly tinfoil hat wearing paranoia. Okay. Uh, Kelsey, <laughs> you wrote about long. this for the Federalist. Take it away. Oh, my gosh. So this article was published on November 6th, and everybody in the media was obviously concerned um, about the elections. And I spotted it and I was like, guys, there's there's something wrong with this. I know we're all a little bit busy trying to cover the midterms, but we need to talk about this. There is a mom in the United States who just says she, quote, regrets saving her children from a communist country and giving them the opportunity to grow up in the United States because of Trump. Now, I did write about it in The Federalist. I'd encourage you all to go check that out and read the whole article on Marie Claire because it's hard to believe this was even published. Um, You know, we're comparing a state that right now is um, putting 
putting political dissenters into re-education camps. Um, you know, this is a country that has um, used to have a one-child policy, now has a two child policy. Uh, these girls, to be honest, are lucky having been conceived in China to have made it out of the womb. Um, you know, it's it, China and the United States on, a, on a, you know, when you think about freedom, they're not even comparable. There are so many people in China who would give everything to come to the United States. So obviously the article was insulting in that sense. The biggest problem I had with it is that you know, buried later in the article, this mother talks about how she's been missing her daughter's uh, soccer games to attend marches, and she's been diverting their college education funds to liberal activist groups. And that's when I saw the real problem. And I think it, it really exemplifies what's wrong with the country right now, that parents are skipping soccer games because of politics, because of Trump. That is the breakdown. That is the definition of the breakdown of society when you care more about, you know, politics than attending your so- attending your child's soccer game. Um, I, I would say that is that's the real tragedy of this story. That's that's kind of the angle I took in the article I wrote on The Federalist. Um, but if you ever anybody listening, if you ever hear of a parent skipping their child's sports because of politics, knock some sense into them. I mean, I have to say, <laughs> if God forbid I ever have a child someday who's interested in sports, I might try to schedule pro-life rallies at the same time. <laughs> and what do you think this mom is telling her kids, you know, every day when they get home from school? It's not, honey, you guys are going to be okay. Honey, we live in the greatest country in the world. She must be telling her kids exactly this, like... I'm afraid for your future. And she's that has to be doing some damage to their psyche. Yeah. She's telling them that they're victims when actually they escaped a country where they really could have been victims uh, in order to, you know, fight back. One of the other things she's she said she's doing is thinking about stockpiling a bunch of plan B. Uh, This is the abortion inducing drugs that you know you can take shortly after you find out you become pregnant to kill your unborn child um so you know worst grandmother ever <laughs> it's like is that really what we're coming to you're you, you like uh, that like that's like borderline child abuse to scare your children to the point that you tell them they need to stockpile plan b i i mean i i fear for any household that is um communicating about politics in that way because it's it's fear-mongering, it's unhealthy, and it's telling your children they're victims rather than empowering them. Empowering them and and telling them that they are the luckiest children in the world to have the opportunity to grow up in the United States. Well, also, I think, you know, this is a theme that I I've brought up a lot on this podcast, but it, it also to me shows <laughs> two big problems with the left right now. And that's just basically the lack of historical perspective. And then it's also sort of this willingness to cultivate an aura of fear such that I I think this woman, you know, is probably and we're not saying her name, by the way, because Marie Claire changed the name of the author and we're not sure what happened there. But I think, um, you know, I, I think she's probably being serious. And I think that is so out of touch with reality that, I, I, you know, if I was a liberal activist, I would be questioning right now, what am I doing? I mean, you have so many people spun up into fear. You have legal immigrants 
you know, worrying they're going to be deported. You have Muslims who are here legally worrying they're going to be kicked out. Like there's all this stuff that is so disconnected with the realities of the, you know, Trump administration policies and stuff that it's it's oh, it's just really insane. But I, I agree. And, you know, speaking of the bigger picture here. Um, I was in L.A. recently, you know, talking to some friends who are very far on the other side of the political spectrum as myself. And, uh, you know, I was talking to them about this idea of fear mongering and asking them, well, what really has changed in your life since Trump took office? Like, tell me what has changed. And they couldn't point to anything except maybe their tax reforms. Uh, tax reforms. <laughs> tax More returns. money for shoes. I just called it reforms yeah. again. I did that when I was doing... Fox News the other day. Oh, name dropping though? Oh, yeah. No, no. Yeah, when I was on but Fox the other day. But that's the second <laughs> yeah. time I've done it. Tax returns are different than tax reforms, but tax reforms can lead to tax, <laughs> tax re- low, lower Higher tax, tax returns. <laughs> like the key thing is more money to go spend. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that, that really is what has changed um, for a lot of Americans. And I think that kind of brings up all the, you know, wraps up the both topics that we were just talking about um, because uh, Americans, the economy is working and Americans are bringing home money. Women are bringing home more money. Um, and I think you saw, you know, that some some people vote because of the economy, but maybe not as many as I had expected. Right. And last, I mean, I was just I think you alluded to this briefly, Kelsey. But of course, China is literally putting away these Uyghurs, these Muslims into uh, similar to concentration camps right now. I mean, there's really stuff happening in China that is sort of the worst fever dream the left thinks that Trump would do. Do you think this lady could have written this article in China if you switch the America and China? No, she'd be imprisoned. Absolutely not. And I I tweeted out a video of a journalist who, you know, covers China and I guess the situation over there. And he was being interviewed and had a breakdown. This is a male who had a breakdown, which doesn't I guess happen as opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because all of his sources have disappeared. Uh, you know, and, oh, you know, as a journalist, I think you can really understand this, the, you know, why he would be so upset about that, because in many ways he probably feels responsible. That's how bad the situation is, has gotten in China with political dissenters. It needs to be taken seriously. The U.N. is addressing it. Um, but China's no joke. All right. Well, for our next topic, actress Alyssa Milano is no longer down with the Women's March. That's despite her avid support of the Me Too movement. Milano said she won't be speaking at the 2019 march due to concerns about the march's founders' ties to Louis Farrakhan's hate-mongering. In an interview with The Advocate, she said, I would say no at this point. Unfortunate that none of them have come forward against him at this point or even given a really good reason why to support them. Kelsey, you again have uh, written about this topic. What do you think? I'm relieved that one celebrity finally stepped up and did the right thing. Uh, As someone who regularly covers the Women's March, I felt the need to give her credit, um, give her a little pat on the back for doing the right thing. There's a lot of issues that I think anybody remotely uh, who's moderate or remotely on the right would strongly disagree with her on. Um, But, you know, I I do wonder, I think, since um, the shooting that happened in Pittsburgh a couple weeks ago, I, I think maybe some people are taking the Women's March's ties to an open anti-Semitic more seriously and, you know, 
maybe Alyssa Milano can make a difference and more celebrities will speak up. I am curious what's going to happen with this, if any of the founders will be held accountable, uh, because the Women's March without them would be very strange. I mean, these there's three of the four founders of the Women's March all have ties to Louis Farrakhan, and I think the organization would be very different without them. Yeah, Tamika Mallory called Louis Farrakhan the goat, which for those who don't know, means greatest of all times. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know yeah that. this is. I not... actually didn't know that. Really? Yeah, but I've heard it. <laughs> yeah, the goat. Which I mean, that's not like a tie. Like they sat next to each other at an event. This is an Instagram post that's still up as of, you know, noon today that she says this guy's the greatest of all times. He's said things like Hitler was a great guy. He's called Jews termites. Like he's not like, oh, maybe he is a not great dude. Um, And I think this just goes to show that the Women's March does not represent women. It represents this weird segment of like woke liberal women who need to fit in this little box. And I know Kelsey said it, but I want to hit it again. Good for Alyssa Milano and Right after that quote, it goes on that says, I'm going to go advocate for um, migrants. Uh, I think she was talking specifically about uh, going back to, you know, the quote unquote uh, family separation issue. But she's still going to remain politically active, but she's looking into organizations that she's supporting and causes and she's uh, making a decision to distance herself. And she's not somebody who spoke once. She was one of the main advocates of the Women's March. She's kind of credited for starting the Me Too movement or really kind of pushing it along. So, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that people are starting to really see the Women's March for what it is. And I think it'll be interesting if, you know, I think there's a lot of women who have at least attended a Women's March, even if they're not leadership, who are not at all anti-Semitic and would probably be horrified if they knew about this. Obviously, the media has done very little reporting on this. And, um, yeah, I think it would just be healthier for our country if, yeah, there was this disassociation, even if they kept all their other issues, but said, no, this isn't a place where we want to go. But Yeah, a lot of the mainstream media has shied away from it. Conservative media has been covering it for a long time. Uh, the Atlantic has run a piece and maybe a couple others. And I have to say, one of the only, quote unquote, mainstream media journalists who does point out the hypocrisy is Jake Tapper. So credit there. Caduce to Jake. Well, for our last topic, we hear a lot about toxic masculinity. But during the tragic shooting in California, there was also some male heroism. Matt Winterstorm, who was at the Borderline Bar when the shooting occurred, spoke to ABC News. What did you guys do next? Um, At that point, basically, there is a, a bunch of us that were just looking for cover and we were we were standing right next to a pool table and so we got everyone behind the pool table and down and then there was probably six or seven of us guys just dogpiling over the girls that were beneath Protecting us. Them. Yeah, because they're it's my family, that's what that's what you do with your family. So I grabbed a bar stool, we went through the through the window and then we people, whoever was in the front basically was pushing the glass down and jumping out and help helping the guys and girls out. Um, and we just stood there basically forcing people, as many people as we could out as, as fast as we could until um, we cleared everyone out and then we jumped out ourselves. And then it was just trying to collect everyone and push them down out of sight 
and as far away as possible. So I was just very touched to hear this. I think as a woman, you know, anytime you're in a dangerous situation and a guy tries to protect you, you know, it is it's very moving. Um, Lauren, what did you think? You know, we talk a lot about toxic masculinity and that men are supposed to fit in this little box. And I think it starts all the way really in kindergarten. Little boys get in trouble way more than little girls and they're supposed to sit on their hands and not do anything. And we just talk, we, we, you know, make men the enemy over and over again. So Kate, I'm really glad you found this clip and you're, you're exposing this side of the story where men's first reaction is typically to help women. And, and this is what we should be praising men and, and we should be developing from young boys in kindergarten that, you know, they don't always have to come save women, but biologically they're, they are the protectors. They are stronger and that's mm-hmm. never going to change. So yeah, good for you, Kate, and good for these guys. I agree. And just to build on that, I think, um, you know, women are often concerned with the gender pay gap, but there have been some really interesting reports by economists on (laughs) the workplace death gap. So far more men are dying on the job and do die on the job than women. Um, They are often the ones who are stepping up and putting themselves in these riskier Uh, positions with riskier careers. And sadly, we saw that happen. Uh, One of the victims of the shooting was a California sheriff. Um, This broke my heart just minutes before going in. uh, According to reports, he called his wife and uh, he was the first one to enter the scene and got shot multiple times. Um, his, his name is Sheriff Ron Ellis, and he uh, was getting close to retiring, which is, yeah, absolutely heartbreaking to me because he devoted his entire life to serving the public, died a hero trying to save others. But, you know, out of anyone who deserved his retirement, you know, it's someone like him. And, you know, sadly, he, he leaves his wife, um, who he called just minutes earlier. Which, yeah, I think... When I first heard about that, you know, knowing, you know, one of the boys I grew up with as a police officer and thinking about him and his wife and their family, you know, I can't imagine for 29 years, like she probably had so much worry over that span. And then to sort of be like, OK, that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. He's going to retire. We're going to have, you know, our golden years together. And then to have this happen, it must have just been especially devastating. But. Yeah, I mean, we're yeah, so I do. I do think you know. Obviously, our law enforcement deserves so much credit for their bravery, and you know, everyday men. I think we need to stop shaming them so much because you're exactly right. From the early reports we're hearing, um, you know, about what happened inside this bar, there were a lot of bra- brave men who were doing all they could to protect women, and um, you know, we we need to recognize that and you know, not try to ostracize them from society, which I feel like so many of these sort of feminist activists have been doing these days. Or they've been, you know, I was really glad, Lauren, that you brought up, you know, the issue of boys are just more active in school, which is a problem and yet not one that many educators take seriously, that our modern school system is really geared toward um, what works for girls, not so much what works for boys. And, you know, perhaps we even see that in the fact that more women go to college now than men. Um, But I I think, you know, overall, there seems to be a strain in feminism, which strikes me as like they really want to eradicate 
masculinity to a certain extent. They want men to be much more like women. And I think just as women, we want to stand up and be like, we don't want to be exactly like men in the workplace. We want to be equal, but we have our own approaches. I think it's, you know, there's a lot of good uh, side effects, shall we say, of being a guy that includes stuff like being productive. (laughs) And that's, you know, if you eradicate some of the rougher stuff, like, you know, maybe being a little more aggressive, obviously not beyond appropriate boundaries, you also risk the chance of eradicating the great stuff, like being protective. And I don't think that's something that we take seriously enough. Absolutely. And I guess the last thing I'll say on this tragedy, I mean, it's, it's like, it's scary how normal it's starting to feel waking up and hearing about one, one of these. And, you know, what we're hearing now is, um, the alleged shooter supposedly had um, PTSD. He was a, a veteran. And I just think one of the things we can all do to be a part of the solution is to reach out to anybody we know in our lives who is struggling, um, who is not fitting into society and and be there for them, work with them, be a part of the solution. Don't just leave that person alone because they're having issues and that's not their problem. You know, if you don't make it your problem, it's going to become all of our problems. And I think so many of these tragedies, the solution lies in local communities, in families and in friends. And uh, my last thought in that video that we you just heard at some point, the man was very specific. They broke down the windows and they were helping men and women out. So at some point. They stopped protecting the females and they took action to actively save everybody. So I think, too, in tragedies like this, focusing on the good, that so many people were ready in a moment's notice to put their lives on the line, that heroic police officer and these young men, um, that humanity is good. And it is really sad that this does feel normal, but it should also feel normal that people were stepping up and helping one another. Okay. Well, on that note, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.